This is Tomorrow's Bike Podcast, the podcast where Andres and I are diving with stunning guests into their story, challenges and opportunities, all backed by food, allowing us all to get inspired, get more knowledge and grow. And today we talk about... I don't remember exactly how old I was, but at some point I realized that the world is pretty messed up and I gave myself uh, one year to come up with an idea. I was really, that was a bit of a shock. Also, not just the amount of negative comments, but also the... Also noticed in your talks or in other podcasts is that you do not show a lot of appreciations for a supermarket. Yeah. Why is this? A long, messy way of finding out that maybe an app is not our main product. What I always keep in mind and what keeps me hopeful is the idea of... Frank is one of the guests who has truly inspired by the nature of our world and, as a real ranger, strives to keep not lose its beauty. He is a person with a golden heart who educates others for the better purpose of all of us. This conversation shows how important a dedicated mind and understanding one's own purpose is. So, without further ado, I am Andres Antondura. And I am Shago Van And this is Tomorrow's Bites. Frank, thanks for joining to our podcast and to accepting the invitation to come to Tomorrow's Bites. I guess that for a question to the first, would you explain to the audience who you are and in what mission are you on? Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Frank and my mission is to solve climate change with food. Uh, it's a big, that's a big title, um, but uh, more practically, it is to make it as easy as possible for people to switch to a sustainable diet. So to help them eat more sustainably. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the mission that I'm on. And also more broadly, to just live, a, to sort of find a sustainable way of living for myself and then helping other people uh, live that life as well. Frank, what moments in your childhood or your teen years have shaped the kind of well, profession or person you are today? Yeah, there's a lot of them, um, but definitely two that uh, stick out. Uh, one is the, um, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but at some point I realized that the world is pretty messed up. Uh, I lived in a, I grew up in a very peaceful village, uh, in a safe family, everything sort of, everything was great. Um, and then at some point I realized that not every child grows up, uh, with that setting and that environment and safe space. And that made me really sad and also a bit guilty in a way, sort of like, why am I living in this part of the world with a, and also a good family uh, and so many others? Uh, are not and uh, at some point the guilt shifted into more sort of okay well I can't do anything about it I realized of course I can't choose where I was born but I can do something with my privilege that was an important moment um, and the other one so there's so many small moments of living in 
nature or with nature. There was a lot of forest around and a river, uh, but one visit to the biggest glacier in Europe was definitely sort of a, a, a big moment. And, and I was so fascinated by it. Um, but I also, that was, I think it was in the same year that I saw An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, the documentary. And that for me was sort of the wake up call uh, or the first time I got really serious about, okay, climate change is a big thing. I want to do something about it uh, because this beloved glacier of mine, it's going to go away if we don't do something. That is a tremendous documentary. I also watched it when I was uh, young. Really, really good one. Really recommended. So then you decide to study communications. Uh, so my question is, how did you got that decision and what did you learn in the university that is still relevant for you? Even it was not in class because that happens a lot of times. Uh, well, the funny part was how I got that choice was just because I didn't really, I wasn't a very serious high school student and my mom was looking for me. Uh, like she thought that needs to be some pressure, like what are you doing? Uh, and then she started searching for uh, bachelor programs in English in Rotterdam, which is a city where I was originally born but didn't grow up. And then, and then she said, "Hey, look at this. This seems like it's something for you." And then I read it and I thought, "Yeah, that's it." And then I applied and I got in, <laughs> and, uh, and then I loved it. Um, and I learned a lot of things. I think the joke sort of of everyone in our study was that we. Even though we studied communication, nobody could really communicate what we studied. <laughs> uh, and also that we did, nobody really knew what to do with this afterwards. But I still think a lot of things were useful. One just really practical thing that I learned in the first week, I think, of studying was how to write a good text. Sort of just like the fact that a paragraph of a text should be about one idea. And then you start the next paragraph about another idea. It's something very simple, but just learning how to write in this way was, it's, I still remember it, so it stuck with me. I don't know if this will ever arrive to uh, a person that has to decide to bachelor, but actually your your story, I think, is a story of a lot of people that in the moment where they leave high school, is like, yeah, we'll do something, I have to do something. But a lot of times it's not as well thought as, uh, not as like you don't uh, are born with this vocation of, oh, I'm going to study this a lot of times, no? Uh, uh, so I think it's a cute story. Yeah, and I got lucky in this way, but the, I, there could have been other things as well. It's, I think sometimes people try, like students try to obsess, like what is the right thing for me to do? And maybe it's maybe there's not just one thing, maybe there's multiple. But uh, in my case, I was lucky to find one that was my thing. And after working in some companies, you decided to start your own project for Granger. Can you share with us how you made this decision eventually? Yeah, so this was a long process in a way. because So I did work for a few projects, but I never had a, a real job, as I call it. Um, I did some freelance work and then I was part of a sustainability project. And then when that ended, I had sort of decided that I was going to start. I wanted to start a startup and I gave myself uh, one year to come up with an idea for this startup. So I was just, I had read enough about startups that I thought sort of, okay, this is something I want to do. I don't have an idea yet, but I'm sure I can come up with something in, in a year. Um, and so this was in November when I decided this. Then um, I had a lot of questions about sustainability and I started researching 
especially sort of where can I make the biggest difference? Uh, putting things, numbers into context, putting them next to each other. And then I was really surprised about the impact of food. And for me, that was sort of the moment where I thought, okay, now I want to make this eating less meat thing uh, serious. I had been sort of into it a little bit here and there for quite some years, but not really committed. Um, and that was a realization that I wanted to do something with it. And then um, I was still figuring out what to do. Uh, it seems like such a straightforward story. What I tell it usually is I came to this conclusion of food and then I started Fork Ranger. Uh, but that's not really how it went. It was five months in between that where I actually applied for jobs because I needed to do something with my life. Then I decided to actually go freelance full time and uh, and go all in on that, spend a month just fine-tuning my website. Um, and I did a, two cool freelance projects during that time. And in the meantime, I was working on finding recipes because that was sort of the thing, okay? Eating less meat makes a big difference. I want to make it easier for myself and maybe my friends to do this because the recipes I find online now, they're not for me. Uh, I need something else. Uh, and so being like having this freelance work as a graphic designer pretty quickly i decided i'm going to make a cookbook because i can just do that myself i know how how to make a book and so it was sort of a side project my friends laughed at me for they thought oh here comes frank again with a crazy idea probably not going to finish it anyway uh and then the freelance work sort of i got two interesting gigs and then nothing um, and I was still living with my parents at that moment. And sort of, they were, of course, uh, giving a bit of pressure, like, okay, how's, how are things going? Are you, when are you able to move out? And so then I also took a look at this book that I was sort of this, these recipes and I thought, okay, when do I actually want to have this done? And then I thought, oh, well, my birthday is in December. Uh, it would be fun if my friends can buy it the book as a sort of birthday present uh, and so then from there i started sort of calculating backwards what does that mean how many recipes they want to have in the book okay 50 okay what does that mean well i need to take the pictures i need to do this I need to test them okay oh crap i need to actually be cooking four recipes a week to make that happen um, and so then they got a lot of more momentum and i gave myself the sort of deadlines and then I also started thinking, well, actually, maybe this is the idea for a startup. Maybe I can turn it into an app afterwards, and then I'll do like a Duolingo for, for, uh, for sustainable food, and there's going to be freemium version. And so that's when sort of the ideas developed. Uh, but so that was a long process. It seems so straightforward, but it wasn't obvious always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, much more... Uh long than it seems no? when you tell it just the short version it's always the case right people only see the end and uh, think that like for instance think like Apple became this big just a week ago right it's a long long process and it, it takes time for the, the ideas to develop and mature and for yourself to commit to them and yeah so uh, sometimes I forget about it myself that it, that it went like this so if you have to explain to the listeners what is the fork ranger now uh, and what do you try to achieve with it, how, how would you do that? So fork ranger is a startup 
and growing community of people who want to use their food uh, to tackle the climate crisis. Uh, and we do this by making it as easy as possible to make sustainable choices in two ways. First, we provide the information, so translating the climate science into practical tips and infographics so you better understand which choices really matter and also which choices maybe don't matter that much, so I can leave them for now. Uh, and then we also provide recipes to put that knowledge into action. And uh, so we package those two things, the information and the recipes into an app, um, into a cookbook. And also we have a seasonal calendar, uh, which is more targeted towards seasonal, but it also includes the other parts. So those are the three main products that we have. And then on the side, we also uh, do some speaking um, and other partnerships, but that, those are the main things. Hey Frank, this is a more pivotal question to answer. And I would like to ask it because when we feel in life, we suddenly see the obvious, right? After spending even more time and ever in it, right? But have you ever thought about why this idea would fail? Because I think it's very important to maybe ask you this question when you have a startup, even beforehand, right? To just write it down and think about it. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought about what it, what if it fails. To me, it's not it's not an option in my head even that it fails. Uh, it sounds like one of those. I don't mean it in that way of like, oh, I'm gonna work so hard to make it happen, whatever it costs. More sort of in the sense that I don't see I don't see what else I would be doing, and nothing else makes sense for me to be doing. Uh, so the only question is like, can I? Can I earn enough money to, uh, with with Fork Ranger to pay my bills? Uh, and now, because I met Marijke, my co-founder, it's the two of us. So can we can we live off Fork Ranger? That's sort of the main question. And Plan B then is doing something else besides it. But sort of stopping Fork Ranger is, yeah, that's not it's no longer an option in a way. Uh, and I think from pretty early on, that's because pretty early on, um, after launching the book, I got so much positive feedback that, that it sort of was confirmation enough that, okay, I'm not the only one with this problem of I want to eat more sustainably, but I don't know how and I don't have the right recipes. There's other people like it. So this is an idea worth pursuing. Uh, it needs to be there. We have to solve this issue. Um, so yeah, let's find out how to make it happen and also make a living of it. One approach that is really interesting about Progranger is the gamification because a lot is the process that you can actually obtain some recipes. No? And a week ago, we were discussing with uh, Denise Fabier, that is an entrepreneur that also embraces this mission of reducing the consumption of food of animal origin, looking into sustainability. And one of the things he pointed out is that one of the problems he observed for the consumer uh, was that their knowledge on recipes was really limited. What was uh, your view on this aspect? Um, the, yeah, I think what happens is that people um, don't know how to, that they can't imagine what it would look like if they would cook without meat. So. Um, they see they, they have their their regular uh, Dutch meal, for example, of vegetables, potato, and uh, meatball. 
And if you take away the meatball, there's nothing left in that meal. Of course, it's not interesting anymore. And so what it requires to eat without meat is a different style of cooking, which is not difficult. It's not harder cooking necessarily, but it is difficult in the sense that you need to learn something new that you're not used to. And I think sort of, so a lot of that, the sort of uh, inability or comes also from a just lack of experience and lack of imagination. What do my meals look like if they don't include meat? Um, it seems really straightforward once you've learned how to cook with lentils and nuts and beans. Uh, but if you haven't never done that, yeah, then it's quite then it's quite tricky because meat provides a lot of flavor, uh, so you need to do something else. And I think that's where um, that's what makes it sometimes a little bit tricky. Uh, when choosing the recipes, how important is the health aspect? So, um, of course, it should be healthy as well. It's sort of not the main focus with Fork Rancher. We we do focus on making it sustainable, but it should also be healthy. And luckily, healthy and sustainable are mostly the same thing. And not not completely, not a hundred percent, but the the overall things are the same. So eat more vegetables, less red meat, and more legumes and nuts. Those are sort of the most important uh, most important advice for eating sustainably and also for eating healthy. So uh, just by making recipes with that in mind, it sort of solves itself. So it's not like we say we have the ultimate healthy recipes, but they're pretty healthy compared to what the average person eats. I, I always believe, and Shako knows my, my point of view on this, that this is a tricky question in the sense that we have not defined yet what is healthy. We have an idea. We uh, we say, yeah, this is healthy. Uh, but then you, if you ask yourself, why is this healthy and this is not all the thing healthy? Then it's really like people... Like they have a little bit of uh, uh, mind blown. It's like, ah, yeah, I don't know what is health anymore, and and I guess that that is always something tricky to see that to comp like you do something that is good and then is this good? is this something that is good is like sustainable is healthy? I mean, probably depending on how you look at it, <laughs> this is healthier than eating uh, uh, I don't know like a. Uh, one of these pre-cooked pizza, whatever. Yeah, this is healthier than this. Does it make sense to start questioning, like a lot of times, the health aspect uh, when as long as something is nutritious uh, uh, and balanced, more or less, we can all agree that more, yeah, you can live? That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, people get so obsessed about, like it's diff nobody lives in the gray sort of everyone wants black and white answers and they don't exist for a lot of things. And especially not when it comes to healthy food, there's so much research uncertainty uh, that there's a lot of space for influencers and sort of other people to take a very extreme position and then say, I changed my whole body when I ate this. So this is, how, this is the truth. Well, maybe it worked for you, but maybe it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, so I think there's so yeah there's a lot of debate in that and we 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 just stick to the science which is very nuanced of just saying okay you should eat varied diet low in in meat seems to be pretty healthy although some people can eat healthy on a high meat diet but 
uh, generally, the advice is definitely less um, meat uh, and uh, legumes and beans are good for you. Sort of, it, like Michael Pollan, I always come back to the sentence that he sort of summarized his whole search. He he said, "Eat food, not too much, mostly plants." And that was sort of his summary after going through the whole food system. And uh, I come back to that a lot. Another thing that we wanted to point out about uh, the foreground here is that in your socials that you put super interesting content. Anybody that is listening to this podcast shall follow uh, uh, Frank Holleman or the foreground in social media because the, the content is always really insightful. But sometimes this, can, uh, this content can evoke uh, certain emotions that could be good or could be bad. And right now we had in mind that one of the, your last posts was about uh, Dutch pigs and its animal welfare that is actually really sad to see. How do you deal with uh, contradictions you can also get from this post, you know, like negative uh, response sometimes? So it was interesting because this was one of the first time we shared something about animal welfare. Usually it's just about the climate impact. And this for this post, the, the reactions were not so negative. It was just shock mostly from people. But there was one instance that was really the on Instagram where a video went uh, viral. It was about milk. And there were so many negative reactions on it. Uh, that was really something different. That was really, that was a bit of a shock. Also, not just the amount of negative comments, but also the just like vulgar, violent comments in a way that just, I mean, that's what you get on Instagram where things are more anonymous. That was really not a good day. Uh, but then I, I shared it. I talked with people about it. Um, that helped. And also, in a way, I almost then accepted that if a post goes viral, this is what you get, always. Um, if it evokes emotions and people comment on it, it actually helps the algorithm to reach more people. Um, so I almost became sort of, okay, let's, uh, let's get the comments going. Uh, now, since that moment, I don't care so much about it anymore. Uh, it's more a sort of, I don't know if this works for everyone, but so this one really shocking experience has helped to sort of see, okay, this is a part of it. Well, then let's, uh, that, that's okay. I can deal with it. Uh, sometimes th th there are comments that really touch me uh, in a negative way. And it's mostly from people who I think we should be on the same side, uh, but then have very critical responses. That does make me sad. Uh, but at some point you see comments like the same comments. So then it's like, Oh, here we go again. You get used to it. Uh, so yeah. And there's plenty of positive reaction, uh, opposite of that. I think that also is important to, to mention. Of course. And, uh, you need to, yeah, take that like both sides, of course, uh, to handle it in the end. And, in my opinion, one of the challenges of sustainability currently is that uh, sometimes there be a, a lot of different problems, and we try to tackle at the same yeah that we actually try to tackle at the same time, and that creates a sensation of impossibility to solve everything. 
within the great amount of problems that there are in sustainability? Which ones do you believe that we shall focus on mainly and be aligned to tackle and why? Yeah, big question. Um, so, well, the one thing I think a lot of people look for a silver bullet for climate change, sort of this is what's going to solve it or this is what's going to solve it. And uh, it doesn't exist um, because uh, sometimes then you also hear people like um, have these arguments about how much CO2 everything emits, like, oh, our country is only 1% of global emissions. It doesn't matter if we change. But well, there's 200 countries. Um, so, of course, it's not going to be 50%. Uh, and in the same way, each solution contributes a few percent to the overall solution or problem of climate change. And so each part is necessary. There's not one thing that we can do. At the same time, there are some things that make a bigger difference than others. And I think, especially when it comes to lifestyle change, that's one part of the puzzle. We need to not overwhelm people with a thousand things that they need to do, but sort of focus on the most important ones. And so for me, I try to focus on living a lifestyle that's not consumerist. Uh, so very practically, sort of the main, main three things when it comes to lifestyle are less meat, more plants, less flying and car transport actually also. So less fossil fuel transport and more movement on a bike and local adventures and also less stuff and more memories. That's sort of for me sort of, okay, those are three things that make a massive difference where I don't need to spend more money, it's in everyone's reach, and it contributes to a, a sustainable lifestyle. Are there other things that I could do as a consumer? Definitely. Uh, but for me, that's sort of what I try to focus on. And then there's some other things like changing your bank, insulating your house if you, if you can, um, and of course, voting, protesting. These things are important too. But it's always finding this balance between focusing on the things that make the biggest difference from a numbers-based perspective, but then not getting lost in the numbers and still seeing like, okay, we have to change the system. And changing lifestyle is part of changing the system. But at the same time, we also need to put pressure on politicians and businesses. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's very messy and complex, but we need to do everything at once. And I think accepting that is, uh, is important instead of trying to have these discussions of like, What's the main thing that we should be doing? Also, another thing that comes to society when it when it's about uh, pointing out these uh, lifestyle changes is that when you talk about the problems that have to be solved, uh, such as reducing their meat consumption, there is immediate reactions that you also pointed out before when you were talking about this viral content. This that they. They, they point out the potential consequences, no? Like if you say you need to reduce meat consumption and they will tell you what we do with the cows. So they are already like putting in this, no? A hypothetical situation where, how do you manage situations like this? Yeah, it's a tough one because there's so many nonsense answers that people give. Uh, just like what happens with the cows or like if we don't produce the meat here, it's going to be produced somewhere else. 
uh, and to a worse environmental standard and all these uh, hypothetical questions. I think often they're a way for people to sort of back off and escape a little bit the, the, the inconvenient truth because they sort of feel that okay there's probably something here but they don't want to accept they're not ready to accept it yet so a lot of times i just i if i if it's if it's the right setting i try to respond very factual just like no well this and this and this but that of course is tricky because you you can't expect everyone to have all the facts at hand uh, because it takes a lot of time and research. Uh, so I think just being patient helps, especially if it's someone in your own network. I think a lot of change comes through relationships. And so then with time, something will happen. But yeah, it's tricky because there are factual arguments, but not not everyone has the facts at hand all the time um, which is one reason why in the in the app we we gave people the option to just save infographics so you can share them so they can use us as a way to sort of like no sure here this is uh, this is actually what it what it works like and there's a lot of misinformation out there and it's very complex so it's not always easy another thing that you also noticed in your talks or your interventions in other podcasters, for instance, is that you do not show a lot of appreciations for a supermarket. <laughs> um, yeah. Why is this? So I have a sort of, on the one hand, I don't want to be too negative about supermarkets because it is also where I do my groceries. It is where 70% buys their food. So it's an important place to look at. But one of the problems is that supermarkets need to be very efficient and standardized because there's one supermarket chain across the whole country. It needs to be the same in each location. Uh, everyone expects it to be the shelves to be filled from morning to night. And with that, you're sort of forcing a natural process of agriculture, which is not a machine into this very machine setting. Um, so what that means is that each cucumber needs to be straight and look the same. Each apple needs to be this size. Uh, and that's not how agriculture works. And so a lot of food is wasted because of this, or uh, a lot of farmers are left with it. So it's not supermarket waste, but it is waste for farmers. Uh, and the other thing is that they have a very powerful position in the food chain, so they can really dictate the prices uh, and they are very price driven. Uh, they need to be in a sense. It's not it's not easy. I don't have the solution for them either, uh, but the supermarket as a system. It's very powerful uh, and it's not making lives easier for farmers who try to do something more sustainable because you need to have deliver all these standardized products and then sometimes it also happens that no the, we don't want to sell strawberries this week because the consumer doesn't want them or something like this and then the farmer is left with the strawberries uh, so they are and that and the, the thing is the annoying thing is they're very good at promoting themselves as very sustainable 
uh, by saying, oh, we've saved this much, we've reduced our plastic packaging by uh, 50%, which saves, of course, tons of plastic, which is not, which is a good thing. But what, at the same time, you have a sign outside of the street where you sell beef one plus one free, like, oh, come on, that doesn't make sense. So I think that that that's, um, it's a complex issue again. I don't know how we can solve it because a lot of people will go to supermarkets, but they have a lot of responsibility that I think they are not always taking. It's a complicated uh, problem, but still I think it's good that we have at least this discussion because maybe people will also start to think more about maybe the responsibility of of supermarkets. And I'm going to make you this question is uh, maybe a quite direct one. And if you if you don't have a clear answer, if you uh, uh, want to go release on it, you can. But do you believe that meat companies are making pressure institutions to prevent changes? Yes, I think um, a lot of companies are learning from the tobacco industry sort of the playbook of how to delay action. And it's, if I think too long about it, it drives me mad that there are people actively working against making something better. Uh, is, uh, it's, yeah, it's horrible. Uh, and, I, and it's definitely happening. I don't know. It's hard to see, but there's definitely a lot of lobbying going on to keep the interests of the current companies there. Uh, and meat companies have a lot to lose. So luckily, they're also realizing that they need to off that they need to change. And so some of them are also investing into plant-based meat and offering that. But a lot of it is um, first it was misinformation, and but I think the most what happens mostly what's very effective is that well, we don't know exactly, let's wait for the science, let's trust the science, and then they use this as a way to sort of delay action. And uh, yeah, we, we know plenty to move forward with the right action. We don't need to wait any longer. Uh, of course, there's always more to learn, and we should be learning more, but we know enough to go into the right direction. Another problem that we wanted to discuss in here, and it's something that you already mentioned, that is the polarization uh, of the current society really promoted also by the social media that people do not see uh, the gray, so only see the black and white. And also this happens a lot when it comes to sustainability because people, of course, they people sometimes have unsustainable behaviors, but they are really struggling sometimes on recognizing them because they don't want to be judged as unsustainable because then that is a tag that they have and they are the villains you know, in, in this story. And I think that, of course, part of the a great, great part of the responsibility comes from the user. But do you think that sometimes certain sustainability advocates fail to deliver their message due to a certain aggressivity in the way that they deliver? Yeah, well, I think... Um, one example with, with food that I, I do see happen is that, uh, people campaign for, uh, vegan foods to make plant-based diets. And so I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. I think we need those voices, but people sometimes they don't, they're not so open to this 
extreme version of diet change. And so then they close themselves off because they don't want, like they're open to eating less, but they're not interested in becoming fully vegan. And for someone who really believes that we should not be eating animals, it, yeah, how can you not campaign for something else? So I, I, I understand that that's what they want, but so we consciously say that you don't have to become vegan to be part of the solution, which is true because eating less meat is also the solution. But for some people, then it's not extreme enough. Uh, for others, it, it helps to get started. So I think uh, it's a messy, like campaigning for change is, is messy in that way. And we take a pragmatic approach based on science also, because we do think that there is room for some meat in a sustainable food system. Uh, but for example, the, the, the com most complicated thing I share a lot is that to replace beef with chicken, this already saves a lot of CO2. 21% in fact of your diet uh, can be reduced by just replacing beef with chicken. But of course, then people point out, well, the chicken industry is horrible. How can you promote that we eat more chicken? And uh, yeah, it's tricky. I don't want people to eat more chicken, but if it helps to save deforestation and uh, other issues and land use, because chickens require less land and feed than cows, well, then it's at least some kind of win. And I think it puts people on the trajectory to then eat less meat in general. So that's why I sort of, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. So I don't want to say sort of, I compromise in values, but it's more sort of a pragmatic approach yeah, it's but it's that that is something that people are critical of that sometimes I I wonder about. But so far, it ha, from it has really proven that it works to low, make the small offer a small step so people can start changing. The life of an entrepreneur is is quite demanding, right? And um, you were yeah, you said it all before that you wanted to pursue a business you wanted to create a startup uh, what are the main lessons you have got from your experience yeah so far from your experience as being an entrepreneur oh so many <laughs> um on the one hand sort of the mission hasn't changed since the beginning and on the other hand so much has changed and almost everything is different uh, from what we started with because so one of the most important things that I've learned is to take the user central. Um, I've read this book, The Mom Test, that helps you talk to talk to users and get feedback. And that was so important to understand sort of, okay, who are you solving a problem for? That really helped. Um, and I think that was one of the key things that really it starts usually with an intuition that you have and with an idea, and then you just need to start, uh, put it into action. And that's what I did with the book. But then you also need to evaluate it, uh, see if it works and do it in a foolproof way. So not people, not ask people, do you think this is a good idea? Uh, but sort of, uh, yeah, the mom test works really well in that sense. 
Um, and if you then stick to what makes it valuable for users, then you will get, at some point, you will get somewhere where you will find a solution. And that's how it's been for us. It's a lot of experimentation uh, to get to a point. But I found it surprisingly hard uh, compared to how uh, I thought about it at the beginning to align a sustainable mission with a business model. So a lot of times in the startup world, uh, it, people believe that you can find a business model for anything. You just need to try hard enough. But for some things, there's not a business model. Like how do you put a business model on behavior change? That's what, what we're trying to do. It's very hard. Uh, and I think we're getting somewhere because we've, we've shifted and we've realized, okay, we need to do more than just the app. We sell a book, we sell a product, um, but also we changed our goal. We don't want to be anymore this tech startup with millions of investments and growing to uh, uh, this, this level that you can sell out. That, like this VC capital uh, Silicon Valley tech startup, that was what I was going for in the beginning. Uh, but we let go of that idea and that made things a lot easier. This is one of the main topics we wanted to address to you about your experience as an entrepreneur is that a priori, as far as I know, you're not a software developer. And still, your project is part, partly based on an app. A lot of entrepreneurs normally think, I have this great idea for an app, but I don't know how to code. I will never do an app. Can you share your experience with this and advice for those aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, so this is a tricky, uh, this was, a, and well, not any longer, but for a very long time, this was a tricky subject for us because, um, so how it, how it went is after the book was finished, I started working on the app myself by doing some things in WordPress, just making a web app, like, you know, trying to make the easiest thing I can make. And I got further than I thought with that but then once it was finished i realized that it sort of okay who did i build this for and then this is when i found out about this book the mom test and i realized i made something but this nobody's waiting for it this is not a, a user problem i'm solving so then it was back to the drawing board and at some point uh so then i met marike as well my co-founder um and then a friend of mine jordi he's a app developer And he said, you know what? I'm just going to build you the first version. So, I mean, I was super lucky with that. And, and it wasn't like he said, I'm going to build the whole app. It was just, okay, let's take one Saturday and build the simplest possible thing. Uh, and that sort of got some momentum. And then we still, it, it wasn't ready to launch. Uh, and we had so many more ideas we wanted to do, but we had to just trim and trim and trim and make it simpler. And then suddenly we thought, okay, what if we just do four recipes a week with a blog post that changes every week? That was it. That was the first version. Um, and so, yes, um, building an app without a developer, I don't know if it's possible. There's more and more tools for doing it, but it's, it's hard. So if you focus your whole business model on an app, you probably do need a developer. Uh, because what we ran into afterwards is that uh, our focus was on the app 
before Granger, but Jordi was still working on other projects. He wasn't he he wasn't the co-founder suddenly. He wasn't working on. He was just helping out, uh, and so that what meant that we could never go as fast as we wanted to go. Um, so it took a long time. So and and then we found two other volunteers actually to work on the app. So we have now even we have one more. So we have four app developers who work for us for free, um, which is pretty crazy. But that's like yeah, it's one of the benefits if you work on sustainability. It's a bit e harder to earn money, but it's easier to get people excited about your mission and help out. And this was one of the reasons, but not the only one, that we switched away from this idea of being a tech startup. Because uh, we realized if we want to make the app the main product, then we need more developer time on it. But it wasn't the main reason. It was also just it didn't fit with our strategy. Sort of, it was we had this. It was a bigger. It was bigger than just an app. Uh, we, the book was doing better than I expected in the beginning. Speaking was suddenly becoming a thing on social media. It was felt a little bit like a community, a community starting to grow. So at some point, it just made sense to think, okay, Fork Ranger is an organization with a book and an app, but it's not mainly an app like Duolingo is. So yeah, a, a long, messy way of finding out that maybe an app is not our main product. And maybe... It will be in the future. I don't think so, but who knows? Well, I wanted to say the whole setup of your app and the community that you create on social media is uh, is to get respect for and and it's and it's needed. Um, but what are the next steps for you? Where do we see Frank in the future doing? Yeah. Mm. So a few years ago, I sort of had a clear answer for that because I was following this template of the tech startup and then you sort of, okay, then this is what how it goes. Now we don't have a template anymore. Um, so I don't know how to answer the question so well. What I do know is that uh, I want to continue working on this and grow it, of course. I think I've discovered that the speaking so just giving presentations and doing keynotes, I enjoy it and it works well to bring the mission across. It works better in person than it works in an app or in a book. So I think that will be an important aspect. But where Fork Ranger is in five years, well, bigger than now, but I, I don't know exactly. I, I sort of almost stopped answering that question for now. Uh, because it's things have gone so differently. So that we know what we want to do. We have a very clear mission, uh, but we're very open of finding ways how to get there. Especially now that we don't have to follow this this tech startup template. So, yeah. Ah, curious. Well, it's tradition in uh, this podcast that the previous guest leaves a question for the coming guests. So our previous guest, uh, when we told you here about what you do, so uh, her question was, what do you believe that are the biggest challenges to get people to change a more planet-friendly diet? Um, I think it is 
um, a lack of imagination. Um, so I was talking earlier about people right now can't imagine what a sustainable, like what a meatless meal looks like uh, because they've never experienced it uh, or they've experienced it and then it was a salad uh, or something that wasn't like what they want to eat. Um, and it's not just that I believe this, this is also this research that, that, um, uh, that, that came to this conclusion that lack of imagination is one of the main issues. Um, and, and the other thing is a habit, oh, but yeah, that's always there if you try to change behavior. Um, but I, yeah, I think really that so far I found that people find it they're surprisingly easy to eat less meat, which is really the most important thing of a sustainable diet, but it's, it's more the social thing around it. The other, what do the other people think of me if I start eating less meat? Oh, if I eat less meat, I'm not a real man anymore. Um, oh, if I eat salads, I'm not going to have enough protein. It's not going to taste as good. Like it's all in the, it's all emotional and mental and, and social. Uh, so that's the that's the hardest part. And uh, but breaking down those barriers by just showing people, I think. Uh, and having other people in there, slowly the network of people who do this is going to grow and that, that will have a big effect. You touched some topics there that I really want to have discussed sometime in, in this podcast. So there's a, a really nice answer, definitely. And there is also another tradition that we have, and that's what we ask uh, the guest, what is your favorite food product or dish? Food product or dish. You can choose from your own recipes. That is a good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I do cook with all my own recipes now because it's just so easy. Um, but my favorite. It's funny when I was a teenager, I used to answer this question with um, McDonald's. <laughs> I get. It's. Uh, it's. That's what happens when you're a teenager. I don't go there anymore now. I try not to, but. Uh, um, now, my favorite food, I think it would be either peanut butter or apples. They do a good combination, eh? <laughs> combination as well. I don't get tired of these two ever. I can eat them all the time. And, and I got a really new appreciation for apples also, because at one point I was working with a, a uh, a girl from Thailand and of course they have a lot of exotic fruits just tropical fruits that we don't have and that we're jealous of but then just in Albert Heijn there's I don't know eight different types of apples with like okay this one's a little bit sweet this one's a little bit sour uh, and she was amazed by that that the fact that you have so many different choices for apples so then I got a lot more appreciation for uh, our apples here thing i want to ask uh, frank is there something that we didn't talk about during this podcast and you want to mention well we talked about a lot of course there's always things to mention but uh no i think we covered we covered a lot of ground uh i think the one thing maybe that's good to mention for because i imagine that a lot of people listening to this are probably 
doing something, trying to make sustainable choices, um, but feel a little bit discouraged by the fact that things are not moving fast enough. And what I always keep in mind and what keeps me hopeful is the idea of exponential, <clears throat> so exponential growth. Uh, we imagine that growth will be linear, but it, it, it's not. Uh, so the best visualization of this I've seen is a, is a funny YouTube video called Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy. Uh, and so this is a video, it's three minutes long, and uh, it's at a festival, and there's this crazy guy dancing in the middle of the grass, and everyone's sort of making fun of him. Um, but he's having a good time. And then after 60 seconds, uh, another guy joins, and suddenly it's two of them. And then another 30 seconds later, a third person joins. So now it's a group. Uh, and this, so it took 90 seconds to go from one to three people. But then in the next 90 seconds, it goes from three to, I think, like three or 400. Uh, it's unimaginable if you see the end of the video and the beginning, how fast it goes once there's momentum. It's, it's, very, it's such a funny video. Uh, but I really think it's important to keep that in mind because we are so bad as humans with exponential uh, growth that we think like, oh, nothing's happening. But actually, we just need to have some patience because uh, at some point we will reach a tipping point. There's a few people dancing like the crazy guys on the, on the grass, but at some point there's going to be a tipping point and then we'll go much faster than everyone thinks. So I think that's important to keep in mind if you're one of the people working, like one of the people dancing on the grass at the moment. Really nice. Well, thank you, Frank, for sharing your journey, sharing all your insights. Uh, your I, recipes. Your recipes. We really enjoyed doing this conversation. We hope that you do too. And yeah, we wish you the best of luck with the Grinder. Thanks, guys, uh, for uh, your enthusiasm. And I also wish you all the best. Mm -hmm.